So let's, uh, let's all turn in our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in the book of Romans uh, in chapter 11 covering verses 13 to 55, uh, 35. Excuse me. I titled this morning's message, Now I Speak to You Gentiles. And let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I lift up this morning. I thank You for uh, this time that we can gather together. Uh, once again. Lord, this is one day, Lord, that uh, we can commit to you. And Lord, we're here, Lord, to meet you. We're here to fellowship with you and to fellowship with one another. And Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that the fellowship, Lord, in our hearts between ourselves and you, that it would be sweet, that the fellowship that we have with one another would be the same. And Lord, I pray this morning as we look at this 11th chapter of Romans, Lord, that as we finish it, Lord, that you would reveal, Lord, your truth to our hearts. That you would unfold this mystery as it's referred to in this chapter to us. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, be with those that are not able to be here. I know there's uh, some that are out sick and and tending for some that might be sick. We just pray for them. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at these uh, three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And as I've shared in the past already, chapter 9 puts an emphasis upon Israel past. Speaking about Israel and their, uh, their past rejection of Christ. In chapter 10, it was Israel present day. And what is God doing with the nation of Israel? Even today, those that have this veil over their eyes, what is God's plan for them and plan for Israel? In chapter 11, it's Israel future. And what is God's future plan for the nation of Israel? All of those three chapters are in the context of Really, this whole theme that runs through the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. That righteousness that has been given to us by faith alone in Jesus Christ is really seen here in these three chapters. It might call it the the righteousness of God explained and just looking at the nation of Israel. But it's important for us also to understand the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the Bible. You see, the Jews were God's people, His chosen people. God birthed a nation in His plan. He birthed this nation and He called them Israel and He has a special plan for this nation. But He also, that left the rest of us, Gentiles, for many, many years wondering what was God's plan for the Gentile nations. And what we've come to learn is that God had us in His plan. God planned something for us. We we were always in God's plan of redemption. This relationship between Jew and Gentile is important for us to know. Paul wrote in chapter 2 of Romans in verse 14, he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, 
are a law to themselves. So the law was given to the Jew. It wasn't given to the Gentile, but God says they're still without excuse. They're a law to themselves. In chapter 2, verse 24, Paul wrote, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's speaking of his fellow Jews. As it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The Jews put a lot of stock in the keeping of the law. And, and, and even those, that law that was given to them, they held it in such high regard. But many of them didn't keep the law. And Paul here is telling them that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because you say that you have the law, but do you keep it? In Romans 3.29, Paul wrote, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? He's asking a question. And he answers, yes, he's the God of the Gentiles also. Back in chapter 9, verse 24, Paul wrote, Even us whom God called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who were not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. Don't you rejoice in that? That's us. God had us in his plan all along. It's just that it wasn't revealed until God's appointed time. In chapter 9, verse 30, Paul wrote, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Gentiles came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They came to know faith. They came to know that righteousness came through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The Jews, they wanted to hold on to this law of righteousness, this keeping of the law, which God said is insufficient to make you right with me. We finished our study last week in chapter 11. Look at your Bibles, verse 11. The question was asked, was Israel's rejection their final fall? Was that going to be the end of Israel? Because they refused to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. They rejected him as Messiah. Was their rejection and their disbelief their final fall? Paul's answer to that question was, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if the Jews' fall is the riches for the world, 
the Jews' failure, uh, the, the, uh, the failures, the riches for the Gentile, how much more their fullness. We would not have been able to think this whole plan of redemption up. But God had it all worked out before the very foundations of the world. He already had it marked out that He was going to create this nation called Israel. And that it was going to be through, even through their failure that you and I were going to come into this saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, come to believe in the Gospel. And that God was going to turn around and then use the Gentiles to create a jealousy within His own people. That's incredible. That leads us to our text this morning in chapter 11, verse 13, where Paul continues to expand upon this revelation, this plan of salvation that God has for both Jew and Gentile. Look at verse uh, 13 in your Bibles. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says, I magnify my ministry. Now Paul was an apostle. He was one who was sent out by God on a specific mission. And that specific mission was that he was going to be taking the gospel primarily to the Gentile nations. In Acts chapter 9, uh, where Paul got saved and he was also commissioned, we read in, in verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentile kings and the children of Israel. Paul says in verse 13b, he says, I magnify my ministry. You see, Paul's desire was to glorify God in his whole life. That should be our desire. That every part of our life would give glory to God. That we would have this strong desire to be a witness for Christ without compromise. That people might see something in us that's different than the rest of the world. That's how God wants to display himself through you and I to this world. Paul says, I magnify my ministry. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I may win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I may win those who are without law. So to the weak I became as weak, that I might might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partakers of it with you. Paul looked at this commission in his life. You see, we've all been called to go into the world and to preach the gospel. Every one of us is Christians. Paul's example to us was that 
whether it was a Jew, whether it was a, this, uh, a Gentile, whether it was somebody under the law or somebody not under the law. Uh, Paul says, if it was the weak or whatever, Paul says, I want to relate. I want to be able to get into their life. I want to be able to live in such a way that some of them might be saved. You see, Paul had lots of things that he would not do that he even had the right to do. And we're going to see that when we get into the 14th chapter of Romans. There's many things that we could say that we have the liberty to do as Christians. Paul says, you know what? I won't do those things if it means any hindrance to somebody coming to Christ. Anything that Paul felt that would lead a person to Christ, that he would do. As long as it didn't violate, as long as it didn't violate what God had called it to do or his word, Paul would do it. Paul was this kind of guy that would give up his life, his physical life. Remember, he said if it were even possible for him to be condemned, to be anathema from Christ for his brother and brother, excuse me, his countrymen, his fellow Jews, he would have done it. That's the heart of Paul. Look at verse 14. He says, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, and he's speaking here of his fellow Jews, that they would be provoked to jealousy. The idea is that his fellow Jews would look at Paul's life. They would look at his ministry. And then they would want what he has. That's a great question, isn't it? For all of us to ask ourselves: Is there anything in your life, the way you live, the way you, you, you are around people, that somebody would observe something in you that they would be jealous for? Huh, what a question. Uh, Can we get out in this world and be around people and nobody would even know you're a Christian? That's sad. But if we're out around people and they notice that there's something different about you, how you act, how you love, your patience, all of those things that are characteristic of the Holy Spirit living inside of a believer, do they see something in you that they would be jealous for? If, if not, we have to wonder, how, how are we really coming across to people in life? What are people really seeing in us? Is it just because we call ourselves a Christian? It's more than that. It's our life. Verse 15, Paul says, For if the Jews being cast away is the reconciling of the world. He's talking about the Gentile world. What will the Jews' acceptance be but life from the dead? God used the Jews' failures, didn't he? To bring reconciliation to the Gentile world. He used their failures. Only God could do that. 
He says, I'm going to turn around and use my people, my chosen people, in all of their failures, in all of their disbelief, to bring reconciliation to the world. You see, when a person is without Christ, they need to be reconciled. You see, reconciliation is being brought back into right standing with God. Before you knew Christ, you were estranged from God. You didn't want to have anything to do with God. And when God reached out to you and you were saved, all of a sudden that relationship between man and God is restored. You've been reconciled. You've been put back into a right relationship with the living God. What God intended it to be. But sin messed it up. The New Living Translation reads this way, For since the Jews' rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, how much more wonderful their acceptance will be. It will be life for those who were dead. Paul is saying here, if the Jews' rejection brought reconciliation to the world, then just think what it's going to be like in the future. Just think what it's going to be like on that day when Israel is saved during the tribulation period. It's going to be like a resurrection from the dead. When God once again intervenes into the life of the people that He made promises and covenants to. And He he saves that remnant of Israel during that tribulation period. It's going to be like people coming back from the dead. We read in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 11, it speaks about Israel, national Israel, as as being like a valley of dry bones. Maybe you've read that chapter before. And the Lord is going to revive those dry bones in the nation of Israel. God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to Israel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who, who has spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. An incredible miracle of God. For God to bring Israel back into their land. Just like He promised that He would do. That revival of the nation of Israel. Something that has not happened in any other nation in the world. Here's God bringing back the nation of Israel back into their land. Looking ahead into the millennial kingdom, which is yet future in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. It says that in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek Him, and His resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again, 
the second time to recover the remnant of his people who were left. I shared last week about the remnant that God wants to save. There has always been a remnant, a saved remnant of of Israel throughout all of history. God always had his people, that remnant. It goes on to say that uh, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros to Cush, from Elam to Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea, he will set up banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is what God's going to do with the nation of Israel. Verse 16, Paul goes on and he says, For if the first fruit is holy, the first fruit that he's talking about there is Abraham and all of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. If the first fruit is holy, then the lump, which is speaking about the nation of Israel, is also holy. In other words, God started it with those patriarchs. And what came out of that first fruits was this whole lump of bread. The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is also holy. And if the root, and now he he says it in another way, if the root, speaking about Abraham, is holy, so are the branches, speaking about Israel. Paul was teaching here that Israel's stumbling was only temporary that God had every intention of restoring Israel. It wasn't because they, they messed up and then God had to come up with a, a secondary plan. He didn't have to try and figure out. I didn't realize they were going to mess. God already knew they were going to fail. That they were going to, in disbelief, reject Him. And, but God already had it all worked out before the foundations of the world. That's what's incredible about Romans 9, 10, and 11, is it gives us a little bit of an insight, behind-the-scenes look, if we could say, of what God already had planned from the very beginning. And it's incredible. Paul gave these two, part, gave two parts to this illustration. He says the lump the patriarchs, the lump, the nation of Israel, they're both holy. He, he uses the, 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 the root and then he uses the branches. Both of them as pictures. The first part of the dough was offered to God to show that the entire lump, all of Israel, belonged to God. He started it with the patriarchs and he says, and I want to show you that the whole lump belongs to me. If some of the branches, verse 17, were broken off. He's talking about unbelieving Israel here. If some of those branches or some of unbelieving Israel were, were broken off from that, that vine, that root, broken off, their fall, their unbelief, their rejection, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. You see, the word of caution here is the olive tree 
that we're talking about here, there's various interpretations. If you go out and, and look at some of the denominations and what they hold to concerning Israel, some of them want to interpret the olive tree uh, as the church. That the church, as I shared last week, has replaced Israel. And they, they want to make the interpretation that the olive tree here is the church. Uh, I believe that that's a wrong interpretation of Scripture. As believers, our spiritual children of Abraham, that doesn't mean that the church is spiritual Israel. That's replacement theology. That's, that's saying that the church replaced Israel and all the covenants and promises have now transferred to the church. They no longer belong to Israel because they reject it. There's a lot of the church. There's a lot of professing Christians that have some animosity towards Israel. They don't, they don't like Israel. They don't like what they stand for. And they might even sum it all up. You know, this is, this is rejecting people. You know, they, they have their reasons. But they reject Israel as still being in God's plan. The New Living Translation reads this way in this verse. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the Jews have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from the wild olive tree were grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in God's rich nourishment of his special olive tree. You see, we're recipients as Gentiles now of the blessings. We've been grafted in. Something that was unnatural for this these branches of this wild ought to be grafted into the root. It, it's, it's an una- it, it actually doesn't even really work. Only God can do it. That's really what's being said here. That we have been grafted in as Gentiles. He goes on to, to say, do not boast then, Gentiles. In other words, don't be arrogant, Gentile Christians against the branches, against Israel, against those who have rejected Christ. But if you do boast, Paul says, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You see, Christianity never would have come into place unless God started it with the nation of Israel. We're a result of that. We came out of that. And so, be careful, Gentiles, that you do not become arrogant. That you don't boast against the branches, against Israel. But if you do boast, then I want you to remember this. That you did not support the root. The root supports you. We should never be that way as Christians. We should look at this in awe. God's plan of salvation. How He can, in His mercy and in His grace towards His people, in His love, in His patience towards them. That He still has a plan for them. That should give us great hope. That should make us go, you know what, there's hope for me. 
If there's hope for Israel, look what they've done in their rejection. Then surely, God, there's hope for me. Because how many times have I failed? How many times have I, in disbelief, not trusted you and not believed you at your word? And you still come back and you remain faithful to me. Just look at the nation of Israel. Just spend time looking at them and then look at the faithfulness of God towards them. It'll stir your heart up with a, just knowing, God, look how faithful you are. Verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. But remember that you were only grafted into the root, but you were never the root. You just came along later on in God's plan of redemption. Gentiles, we need to be the ones that support the root. We need to support Israel. We need to pray for Israel because God is using you and I right now. He's using the Gentile nations. He's using Christianity today for the Jews to observe and to look at and and to see in that Paul says it'll create a jealousy in their heart. They'll long for what they see in the true church of Jesus Christ. How could a wild olive branch that was only grafted in by faith show arrogance? The the question, how could it? Why would there be some of the church today in arrogance speak against Israel? Say, God's done with you. There are churches today that don't like what's going on right now with Israel and the, the enemies around. There's a support of Israel's enemies. That's denominations and churches and individuals that believe that God is through with Israel. How could a wild olive branch that was only grafted in by faith as Gentiles show such arrogance. Paul says in verse 20, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. As Gentiles, do not be haughty, Paul says, but fear. Don't be conceited, Gentiles. But fear, but rather be in reverence, be in awe of what God has done. That should be our stance. We might paraphrase it this way. Therefore, you would do well, you Gentile readers, to have a righteous, holy fear and to strongly resist any temptation of arrogance of thinking that you're better than the Jew. Well, you know, yeah, but they re- yeah, but I came in faith and I came believe yeah, but you came out of that. Be careful that we would not approach them in arrogance. Look at Paul warns in verse 21. He says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, 
he may not spare you either. <laughs> There's quite the warning, isn't it? If he didn't spare the natural branches, speaking of visiting, he may not spare you either. Why did God not spare them? Why were they, in a sense, cut off from that root? Because of unbelief. Because they rejected Jesus as Messiah. And if God set aside Israel for their unbelief, He could do the same to the Gentiles because of your pride. He could do the same thing. Paul's warning the Gentiles that the Jews, from their relationship with God, were more likely to be spared than you Gentiles. Why? Because God started when He gave all the promises and covenant. You simply just came along by faith and believed. And somehow or another you think that God is done with Israel. God forbid that we would think that way. You see, God has a long-standing relationship with the nation of Israel. Through all of those years, I mean, experiencing all the mercies of God. Just read all the way through your Old Testament. You get on the roller coaster ride with Israel up and down and all the judges and all their turning away from God and coming back and turning away and coming back. Good kings, bad kings, everything, their whole history. He's got a long-standing relationship with the nation of Israel. And it's not because they're faithful that God is going to be faithful to them. He's going to be faithful to the nation of Israel because He's faithful. It's the same reason He'll be faithful to you when you're unfaithful to Him. He remains faithful. That should be something that stirs our heart with thankfulness. Look at verse 22. He continues on with a therefore. He says, therefore, consider the goodness. Consider the kindness and and also the severity of God on those who fell. He's talking about Israel's fall, severity. But to you Gentiles, what? Goodness. He says, if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you Gentiles also will be cut off. The goodness of God. The kindness of God. When did you experience that in your personal life with Him? You see, it's the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. When was the day that you realized how good God was towards you? When you realized His kindness? That should cause us to want to run. You see, it's the goodness of God that should cause me to want to run to Him when I sin. It's His kindness towards me. His mercy towards me. His grace towards me that should cause me to want to run to Him. The Bible says that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Condemnation makes me want to run away from God. Conviction makes me want to run to Him when He convicts me. 
It's this goodness of God, which is really speaks of everything that makes up the very character of who God is. If you just sat and pondered who He really is, everything about His nature and His love, His unconditional, sacrificial love, His mercy and grace and patience with you, that He's slow to anger, that's the goodness of God. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fail, severity. Speaking about Israel. They've paid the price, haven't they? Has Israel escaped their sin? No, they've paid the price. They're still paying the price. But towards you Gentiles, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Verse 23, And they, speaking of Israel also, if they do not continue, if they don't abide and remain in unbelief, will, they'll be grafted in. And for, for God is able to graft them in again. Isn't that incredible? If they do not continue in unbelief, remember I shared last week about the remnant? That God has a remnant that He had in the Old Testament. He has a remnant present day and there's going to be a remnant saved in the future. Looking forward. God has a remnant of those whom He knows are going to come to a saving faith in Him. There are many Jews that will be separated for eternity from God. Not all Israel is saved. Not everyone that is a Jew is going to heaven. But God will save a remnant of His people. And He still has a plan for that looking forward. If Israel does not persist in unbelief, then what Paul says here in verse 23 is that God is able to graft them in again. This is the miracle of God. This is what God is able to do. Paul's argument is that if the hard thing, the thing that's contrary to nature, so to speak, about grafting in, uh, grafting them back in, uh, these wild branches into a cultivated olive tree, if, if that's been accomplished, if God can do that, it was something that's contrary to even nature, that you could take this dead branch and actually graft it back in, and it could be like life from the dead. It can be brought back around. That's an incredible work of God. It's a mystery that Paul is going to reveal and is revealing to us in this chapter. How will God graft them in again? The prophet Zechariah records in chapter 12 a promise of Jehovah that one day that will be fulfilled. In verse 9 it says, It shall be in that day, looking ahead, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Are you watching your news? 
Just keep an eye on Israel. Verse 10 says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. How is God going to graft them in? God is going to bring the you know to that point. He's going to bring them to that breaking point. They're going to look at the end of the tribulation period. They're going to look upon the one whom they have pierced. They're going to realize that they had been deceived by the Antichrist. They're going to realize that they had been living in disbelief and that we missed the one that we were looking for. He was the one and we missed it. And God is going to take a remnant of Israel and he, they are going to be grafted back in. Verse 24, For if you Gentiles were cut, off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, then how much more will these who are natural branches, speaking about Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree. If you're the wild branch being grafted into the root of, a, of an olive tree, if God can do that and save us Gentiles, then how much more could he take the natural branches and graft them back in again and it'll work? The New Living Translation reads this way. I want you to understand this mystery, dear friends, so that you will not feel proud or start bragging. Some of the Jews have hard hearts, but this will last only until the complete number of Gentiles comes to Christ. I read that ahead of time. Did that confuse you? confuse me. Look at verse 25 first. Now it'll make sense to you. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now whenever you see a mystery in Scripture, a mystery is not something that is intended to be hidden from you. A mystery is something that in God's perfect timing, He chooses to reveal something to us of a spiritual nature. In other words, there's a period of time where it didn't make sense. Nobody could figure that out. And then all of a sudden, God, through the apostle or through his word, he reveals a mystery to us and unveils a truth to us that was not known before. That's what's happening here in the 11th chapter of, of Romans. I do, uh, for I do desire, brethren, that uh, you should not, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. And then it says this until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. 
unless you become wise in your own opinion, Gentiles, that this blindness in part has happened to Israel, but it's only happened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, when that last Gentile in this world receives Christ, comes to a a knowledge of Christ and gets saved, you know where I believe we're going? Home. You see, we're in a time period right now where God is primarily dealing with the Gentile nations of the world. Israel has these spiritual blinders over their eyes temporarily. Those blinders will be removed during the tribulation period and there's going to be a multitude of Jews that are going to get saved as well as Gentiles. But there's this period of time that we're in and until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until that last Gentile receives Christ, that's why the Lord hasn't come back yet. When He comes, uh, when that Gentile gets saved, we're going to go home to be with the Lord. And when that tribulation period starts, that 70th week of Daniel, that time clock is going to begin once again. And God is going to intervene once again into the nation of Israel and reveal Himself to them in in another way. He's going to reveal Himself and unveil their eyes to see. This time or this fullness of the Gentiles is not to be confused with the time of the Gentiles. The fullness just has to do with when that last Gentile receives Christ. The time of the Gentiles that you read about in Luke 24 refers to the entire period of Gentile domination over the Jews. And if you read that, you'll see that what's going to happen leading all the way into the tribulation period, they're going to be dominated by Gentile nations all the way to the end. It's referred to as as this, this time of the Gentiles that God is dealing and using even these Gentile nations like we've been reading in Isaiah against his own people, Israel. Look at verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All of Israel will be saved. After the rapture of the church, after we're removed, unbelieving Israel, when they enter that tribulation period, remember the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to be out there preaching the gospel? There's going to be a multitude of Jews that are going to get saved during that time. John said, I saw a number which no man could number. You know, that that were standing there. John saw the vision of this multitude of people that were saved during the tribulation time. I don't think that this verse that says, and so all Israel will be saved, is saying that every Jew will be saved but all that are part of that remnant who God knows. They will be saved. And then he says, as it is written. Paul here quotes from Isaiah 59, verse 20, which reads this way, the Redeemer will come to Zion. Notice that this is speaking yet future. 
Because the Redeemer, when He came, He came and was born in Bethlehem, and He came for the sins of the world the first time, didn't He? And this time, the Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression to, in Jacob, says the Lord, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the, the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your des, uh, descendants, says the Lord for, the time, for this time and it says and forevermore. The Redeemer will come. He's coming. Remember that that time clock in the 70th week of Daniel? The primary purpose of the 70th week of Daniel is to deal with primarily with the nation of Israel. That's what it tells us in Daniel chapter 9. Gentiles are included in that, but it's primarily to deal with Israel. And then in summary, verse 28, Paul brings it to this. He says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The they there is Israel. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for you Gentiles' sake. But concerning the election, speaking about Israel, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, speaking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason that they are still beloved by God, it tells us in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, they can never be rescinded. Every covenant, every promise that God gave to Israel, God must fulfill. God has to. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be a righteous God if he could renege, if he could turn away from any one of those covenants and promises. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 30, For as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God. Do you remember your days before Christ? Your days of disobedience? Disobedience even just means that you rejected the gospel. Disobedience doesn't mean all the sins that you committed, though you did commit sins, and so did I. But your disobedience was even in your rejection of the gospel as Gentiles. For as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through the Jews disobedience we receive mercy because of Israel's disobedience now all of a sudden mercy came to us now all of a sudden the gospel was extended to the Gentile nations because of Israel's disobedience verse 31 even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown to Gentiles, the Jews also may obtain mercy. Mercy's coming for them. It's going to be a great day of mercy during the tribulation period. That God hasn't just kicked them to the curb and said, hey, you, 
you went down your path, you went, you know, he's, he's going to save a remnant of Israel. He's going to extend that mercy to them once again. How many times have you received mercy this last week from God? His mercies are new every day. Do you need mercy today? His mercies are new every day. We read in the book of Titus in chapter 3, verse 3, For you were once also foolish. You were disobedient. You were deceived. You were serving various lusts and pleasures. You were living in malice and envy. You were hateful and you were hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration. You know what that is? The washing of regeneration. That's when you were born again. When God's Spirit came and took your dead spirit and made you alive by His Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Aren't you thankful? That in God's grace and in His mercy, He saved you. Apart from your works, apart from anything you could ever have done for Him, He just simply called you, spoke to you by His Holy Spirit, drew you, you responded to Him and said yes to the Gospel, and He saved you by His mercy. It's not what you've done for God, it's everything what He's done for you. Isn't that an incredible thing to think about? How great your salvation is. It's what should compel us to want to go tell somebody this great salvation. They can be saved from their sin. As Paul was finishing this 11th chapter, I have to think that he was overwhelmed. I have to think that he was just considering his fellow Jews, considering the Gentiles, considering this great plan of salvation that God has given to mankind, this redemptive plan. And he closes out this chapter with some words that I think just reflect how overwhelmed he was. We could say that Paul's words were kind of uh, uh, the consideration of how great our salvation is. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Exclamation mark. I think he was just overwhelmed with this whole thought. I just wonder if any of us here are overwhelmed this morning. Are we overwhelmed with the thought of how God saved us? what He saved us from, how faithful He is to us. He goes on to say, 
How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God's wisdom. It's infinite, isn't it? How many of you needed a little bit of wisdom this week from God? How many of you need a lot of wisdom? His wisdom's unsearchable. He knows it all and he knows how to apply it all. He knows it all. And he knows how to put into practice everything that he knows. And he says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God and God will give you more. It'll be wisdom from above. We need that, don't we? It's incomparable. It's inconceivable. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Wow, it should blow our circuits. I can't even wrap my head around it, really. It'll take his eternity to figure it all out. By faith, we just receive it. But I couldn't put this into play. I couldn't do this. But God, you did it. Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Asking a question. Or who has been his counselor? No created being can know really the mind of the Lord. Can you really get into God's head and have them all figured out? You know everything that he's, you know, how, how he thinks and what's going on. We don't know that, do we? But God chooses to reveal his truths to us. This mystery revealed. He allows us to grasp a little bit of it. And he goes on to say, who has become his counselor? That strikes me. I mean, have you ever tried to counsel God? (laughs) Have you ever tried to tell him, you know what, God, I think I got a better plan than you? You know what I'm dealing with right now, if you'll just do it this way, God, I'll be good. I think we try to counsel God because we don't always like his counsel. We don't like what he's given to us. Isaiah 40, verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? You know, we don't teach God anything. He's the one that teaches us. And we don't really add anything to him. You know, we don't benefit him by what we can give to him. Like he's gleaning something from us. Everything, it's a one-way thing. We get everything from Him, wisdom and knowledge. We're not just in return sending some back to Him. important thing is don't try to. Don't try to do that. Verse 35, Who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? Is there anything that you've done for God as a Christian, anything that you've done for Him that has put God into the position that He needs to repay you? Anything that you know, you know, you've, you've served, you've used your gifts, you've done that, that God needs to repay you somehow for what you've done. 
I don't think so. He concludes in verse 36, For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. That sounds pretty encompassing. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul finishes this 11th chapter by declaring that God is all-powerful. There's nothing too hard for Him. He's all-knowing. God doesn't learn. He's not learning each and every day like we learn. He's not learning. He's everywhere present, meaning that His presence fills the universe. He lives inside of us individually. He's in this church building. He's in the, he encompasses the universe. He's everywhere present. He's the creator of all things. That's the God that put this plan of salvation together. This very incredible plan. He put it all together. And then Paul says, and the glory really belongs to him. And he finishes with an amen. Amen. I'm in agreement with that. Everything that was just said, I agree with you, Paul. I'm on the same page with you. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.